Thanks for coming this morning and braving the snow, and thanks to those of you who are watching online. I uh, told our staff before we started today that uh, snowy Sundays matter. Uh, in the 1800s, a 15-year-old uh, uh, young man was trying to go to church. It was so, so snowy that he couldn't get to where he was going, so he ducked in for shelter at a small little church. A backup preacher was preaching. In the context of that very small service, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted. And I just believe that Sundays, all Sundays matter, and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what it means for Jesus to turn water into wine. Down at the Ministry Center right now is One Fellowship Church. This is their second week in their incubator, which means they're working together. They don't have to do child care or, child or children's ministry. Pastor T.C. Taylor is uh, preaching. In fact, he called me this morning on the way in, said, hey, what, what are you doing on this point again? How are you going to handle this? And uh, so just great to be able to have conversations with uh, him and the other lead pastors with our other churches around uh, the city of Indianapolis. And I want to remind you, we do Next Door Mission because our city needs healthy churches. And there's lots of healthy churches besides the ones that we plant, but there are thousands and thousands of people who do not go to any church, and we think the most effective way to reach them is by putting churches closer to them because our people are more inclined to invite their neighbors and our neighbors are more inclined to go when churches are close to where they live. So Pike uh, Township's going to get a new church in the next number of months, and uh, we're excited to see what God's going to do as they uh, move into their facility at the YMCA coming up around Easter. So be praying for that group of people. About 144 people last week from our church are there. And so we're excited to see how the Lord works and blesses that church. So pray for them. One of the reasons that I'm a Christian is because I believe that Jesus changes people's lives. I'm a Christian because I've experienced personally what happened when I received Jesus. I was privileged to raise, be raised in a Christian home. Thank God for that. And even as a young child and then in the teenage years and into college, I, I have personally seen, not without imperfection, not without trial and difficulty and failure, but I have seen personally the difference that Jesus makes in what I think, how I think, how I think about myself, my identity, what I love and what I value, Jesus has taken control of my heart and it is a miraculous reality that I experience every day. That's why I'm a Christian, because Jesus changed my life. The reason I'm a pastor is because I love being on the front row of seeing what God is doing in the lives of people. Hearing just uh, two weekends ago about uh, high school students that were converted at our annual uh, high school retreat. Hearing from counselors in our counseling ministries about marriages that are put back together, about people who are being freed from addictions. The way in which God is using the word to, to change and transform people's lives. To be able to hear what God's doing in Brookside and the way in which the gospel's being brought forth, not just in message, yes in message, but also in terms of deed and love and long-term commitment. And part of the joy of being in pastoral ministry is the opportunity to be right on the front row and to see with my own eyes that Jesus is still working the miracle of changing people. And I'll tell you, when I see that and when I experience that as a pastor, it helps me as a Christian I go home and I tell my family about it. I remind our staff that, that Jesus still changes people. The Apostle John saw this all over the place, which is why he wrote 
the gospel that we're in this morning. John loved Jesus. His life was transformed by Jesus. He saw the transforming things that Jesus did in his ministry, and as a result, John wanted people to know what Jesus did, and that's why he wrote his gospel according to John 20 and verses 30 to 31. So the end game of this book is simple and profound. It is namely for you to see what Jesus does so that you too will believe and have life in his name. Now today, the first thing that we're going to look at is the very first miracle that Jesus did, and this miracle has a message embedded in it. John puts this sign This miracle at the front end of his gospel, not just for a chronological historical reference point, but John wants you to know something that's powerful about Jesus. So today we're going to look at um, this particular text, and really all of chapter 2 and 3 and 4 are designed to show us things that are new. The new temple, as Jesus will cleanse the temple. The the new birth, as he talks to Nicodemus. The new water and the new worship, as he talks to the Samaritan woman. So chapters 2 to 4 are about Jesus working the miracle of old to new. Now next week, we're going to take a one-week pause for a very important week around here. It's called Prayer Week, and it begins next Sunday morning at 7.15. Can I just challenge you, regardless of the snow, (laughs) Regardless of the ice, I want to encourage you to come at 7.15 on Sunday to pray for our Sunday morning services. Here's a link that will give you all the things that we're doing that particular week for prayer week. We have a staff, um, uh, all church uh, prayer summit led by our staff on Tuesday morning. We'd love to have you come and join us. Men in particular, we have a prayer meeting for you first thing Monday morning. It's early. There's snacks, but no real breakfast, so come, be hungry, and pray. We know you'll come with that. Uh, ladies, there's a 1 o'clock in the afternoon prayer time for you on Monday and a host of other things that we're doing, including a Wednesday evening prayer time where um, our students are going to lead us right here on Wednesday night in a beautiful prayer time. So I hope that you'll use this week as a way to rekindle your passion and your practice in prayer. I want to remind you that prayer is the most talked about but the least practiced discipline in the church. And yet it's one of the most fundamental spiritual disciplines for what it means to have a vibrant walk with Christ. John 2, there is a problem there's a miracle, and then there's glory. And I want to show you this text with those three themes. I'm going to walk you through the narrative, make some applications. The problem, the miracle, and the glory, all of this John is setting up in order to help us understand this singular important point that Jesus is still working the miracle of making things new. He's still working the miracle of making things new. First, hear the problem. Chapter 2 begins by identifying the setting. It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, weddings during the time of Jesus were usually large and lengthy festivities. The wedding service began as the groom and his friends made their way to the bride's home. They usually carried torches, and it was a professional. They'd they'd march to the bride's home, and then the bride and the groom, along with their bridal party, would march back to, in a procession, the groom's home where the wedding feast was held. 
In, in Jesus' day, the groom and the groom's family paid for the wedding. All daughters and husbands and fathers who have daughters could say amen, right? It would not be uncommon for a wedding celebration to last several days or even a week. The text tells us that Mary, Jesus' mother, was there, and we can infer from this that this wedding is somehow connected to Jesus' extended family. Given Mary's role that we see later in the story, it may be that she was involved as a host or a hostess of some kind, or at least she had some kind of emotional connection to the wedding, because what we're going to see is that what happens in the wedding, in terms of this problem, is concerning to her. We learn in verse 2 that Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So remember, John's just introduced to us his disciples in chapter 1. He, he mentions this thing about seeing heaven opened and the angels descending. And this miracle is the first way we're going to see the work of God in the world. And the fact that Jesus' disciples are invited tends towards an understanding that this wedding was a major community event. Like everybody in Cana probably knew about this wedding. It may be that the family was uh, fairly well-known or something that would draw a fair amount of attention, but these disciples, who Jesus has just welcomed, are invited as well. Maybe you can think of a wedding that you've gone to that was kind of a big deal, maybe a, a well-known person or a famous person or, or maybe just a really big deal because of the dynamics that were involved. This is that kind of wedding. In verse 3, then, we find the essence of the problem. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So here's the problem. The preparations for the wedding apparently were not done very well. And in Jesus' time, the presence of wine was a critical part of the wedding celebration. You need to know that the wine in Jesus' day would have been different than the wine which we have in our day. It was diluted with water about a third or a tenth of its particular strength. And, and so this wine would have been as common in a celebration as frankly, water or coffee in our contemporary setting. Now, running out of wine would have been terribly embarrassing to try and get you how to feel what this would be like. Imagine that you're having a, a big work party and you're new at the office or you're in your, your local PTA or your school. You're going to invite all of the family or your neighbors over and you just, you wanted them to feel special and you also want for them to get to know you and so you, you throw a pretty big event and while everybody's over at your house, imagine that your friend who's trying to help you with this event at your home comes to you and says, hey, like, all the toilets are broken. And you're like, what? Where's the plunger? I don't know. Well, they're all stopped up, like they're not working. And so you run or scurry around, and then imagine the friend who you just met at office is like, hey, where's the bathroom? And the sinking feeling where you're like, uh, yeah, ours, there's, there, there's an issue, right? And the kind of feeling that you would have at that moment. Or imagine that, that, you're, that there's no storm outside, there's no wind, there's, it's a beautiful sunny day, and then all of a sudden your power gets turned off and your neighbor's is still on. 
And you're looking around, and go, their power's on. How come I? And your friend's like, hey, how, you know the power's out? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Yeah, it's a little awkward. That feeling that you'd have, that's what's happening here. But there's even a different layer. Running out of wine would not only have been tremendously embarrassing, but in Jesus' day, there was a shame culture that was connected to this. And additionally, New Testament scholars would tell us that the wedding feast and taking care of the guests was a bit of a reciprocity agreement. People brought gifts, but then you took care of them. And if you didn't take care of them in that culture, people took their gifts back. Some of you are like, yeah, that's right. This cake's bad. We're taking this thing. We're going, man, right? So, no. And in some cases, listen to this. I don't know all the dynamics, but a number of commentators bore this out. Lawsuits happened because guests were not well cared for. So, friends, listen, this isn't just, hey, there's no more wine. This is a major problem, and that's why Mary seeks out Jesus. Now, another question, why does she seek out Jesus? Frankly, we're not entirely sure. D.A. Carson suggests that Mary was turning to him because he was the eldest son. Likely, Joseph had already passed away, and she was looking for him to help because he was the oldest son. Verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, you need to know that this type of conversation in our culture sounds rather off-putting, even disparaging. In Jesus' day, it, it wouldn't have been offensive, but it is important to know that Jesus is not calling her mother. He is calling her woman because in this moment, he is establishing a boundary marker that if he's going to do a miracle, he's not going to do it at his mother's bidding. He's establishing in this moment the uniqueness of himself as the Messiah in a separate context from the rest of his family. So John intends for us to not only see the miracle that Jesus is going to do, but also for us to understand who he is. In other words, Jesus is not going to solve this problem under pressure from his mother. He is going to do this because he has another agenda. When he says, my hour has not yet come, he's referring to the fact that the full time for his, the display of his glory has not yet arrived, and John will use this hour has come or his hour had not come all throughout the gospel, and yet Jesus is going to use this problem to do something amazing, and yet it will be on his terms and for his purposes. Now, a couple things to think about by way of application. First, there is rich symbolism here that Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding. I mean, think of that. It's not by accident that he performs this miracle at this wedding, since a wedding, the union of a man and a woman, has such profound implications for both now and the future. The Bible tells us that that kind of union, that celebration of a man and a woman, says something powerful about the relationship between Christ and his church. So it is not by mistake that the very first place that we see Jesus manifest his glory is in the context of a wedding with a major problem. Secondly, I want you to know that this miracle takes place in the context of a human problem. A human problem. 
We'll see this throughout John's gospel as Jesus enters into the mess of humanity and offers himself as the solution. And what you need to know is that every miracle is in response to a problem. Jesus intervenes because there's a human issue that's in play. And the problems and the miracles were designed to point people to himself. So problems create the platform for Jesus to intervene. Most of us came to Christ that way. There was some problem that stared us in the face, realizing, helping us to realize that we needed help. It's amazing when our elders interview members, every one of our People who want to become members are interviewed by our elders just to hear, do they really understand the gospel? Do they understand what the church is all about? It's a beautiful, beautiful process for someone to share their story. And I hear from our elders all the time of the amazing ways in which Jesus intervenes in people's lives. It is incredible the way in which Jesus uses problems in humanity to surface our needs. Maybe you can think of how you came to Christ. Maybe it was a health issue where cancer rocked your world and while you're thankful that you're in remission the beautiful thing is cancer opened the door for you to see who Jesus is maybe a marriage conflict or infertility or employment challenge or relationship breakup or maybe the consequences of some bad decision a substance addiction or some other problem that in the context of a real human issue you realize man I need Jesus help if you're a Christian you ought to rejoice that God brought that into your world to wake you up from where you were at the time it may have been hard and painful but Think of how he used that scenario to help you realize the greater need in your life. You thought your biggest problem was your marriage. The reality was it was a heart that was broken. You may be here today, you're not yet a Christian. You may be watching online, you're not yet a Christian. And it may be that the circumstances of your life have all lined up to finally get your attention. A problem, an issue, a difficulty, and suddenly now you're asking really important questions. And friend, I want you to know that most of us came to faith in Christ that particular way. Where something woke us up to see the reality of our need. So that problem, it's not just about the embarrassment of a wedding and the absence of wine. There's more here. So that's the problem. Now let's look at the miracle. Now that, you know, now that you know something about the nature of the issue, let's see what happens. Mary leaves the conversation with Jesus and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. This seems to be a moment of faith and belief on her part, because even though Jesus responded with mild redirection, she still gives instructions to do whatever Jesus commands. Now, verse 6 tells us that there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So when somebody came to a wedding, they would need to be ceremonially clean and to wash their hands. And so there were these large 20 to 30 gallon, not jars, these were containers of water cut out of stone. So they, they weren't made necessarily like out of pottery, out of clay, they were actually chiseled out and most families had at least one of them. It's likely that these other ones were borrowed from neighbors. So these 
these were containers that servants would then draw water out of a, in a pitcher, and then as people would come in, they would hold their hands out, and they'd pour the pitcher of water um, over their hands for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing. And so these containers are like the backup water kind of behind the scenes that they would use for the rites of, of purification. Now, this is important not just because of the miracle that's going to happen, but also because there is significant spiritual symbolism in the fact that Jesus is about to use the water that Jewish people thought purified them, and he's going to turn that into wine. This is not just the first of his miracles, but rather it was designed to send a very important message. The purification pots represented the old order of Jewish law and custom, and Jesus' message throughout the Gospel of John will be that he has come to fulfill the old covenant, covenant and lead people to something that is even better. Remember, for those of you who were here for our study of John chapter 1, when he said we have all received grace upon grace, the Old Testament was a grace, but Jesus adds another grace on top of that grace, that's what's happening here. John tells us that Jesus instructs the servants to fill the jars to the brim and then tells them to draw out the water and bring it to the master of the feast, a man in charge of the hospitality, and they follow his instructions specifically in verse 8. The response of the master of the feast in verse 9 is telling. When the master of the feast tasted the wine now be, or the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Notice, Jesus doesn't manifest his glory to the crowds. He doesn't do this. There's a, there's a very small group of people who know what Jesus has done. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, what I want you to realize is that when this water was turned into wine, it was a profound miracle. I don't know if you, if you feel that, if you feel the substance of what happened, and in our present-day culture, my guess is that some of you tend to not believe or struggle to believe that miracles can actually happen. You'd be more convinced by scientific data explaining how it happened. That would be actually, for some of you, more convincing than to think, no, this was a miraculous moment. And yet there are things in the New Testament that are miraculous, unexplainable, can't be figured out by reason or by science. You can't intellectually prove and explain how the resurrection of Jesus happened or the dynamics that were in play because the whole purpose of the miracle is to confound the human mind in order to cause you to not trust in what you know, but to trust in a Savior who is Lord over all. One of our former elders, Dr. Jim Williams, who teaches at IU Medical School, sent me a wonderfully helpful blog that he wrote about this miracle. For those of you who are more scientifically inclined and you privately or quietly struggle at times with doubts about miracles, I get that. I want you to hear this. I'm going to read to you a longer section from his blog article, and this is important for you to hear because this is written by a man who loves Jesus, who's a 
is a PhD teaching in a medical school who's considering how do we deal with the miraculous. Listen. He writes, in thinking about this miracle in changing water into wine, the liquid had to go from chemically simple to chemically complex. In order for the flavor, color, and even texture of the liquid to be sensed by the steward as good wine, there must have been present a substantial concentration of complex molecules in the new wine. But the change is really even more dramatic than just complexity. I confess I have always thought this miracle as being one of arranging, merely rearranging the atoms of the water to get wine. Now, candidly, I've never had that thought. (laughs) But he has, and I'm glad he's writing about it. That admittedly, he writes, would be quite a miracle, which that was news to me, right? So, but for me, it would still involve, to some extent, the conservation of matter law that was drilled into me in my chemistry classes. But when I list the approximate composition of first century wine, I discover something that surprises me. Water, even rather dirty water, does not have the correct atoms to make wine. Those sugars and alcohols and aromic compounds and colors contain much more carbon and nitrogen than would be in water. In order for water drawn by the servants to become a liquid recognized by the good steward as a recognized by the steward as good wine, new atoms would have to be formed within the jars. That is, the miracle of water to wine must involve the creation of new carbon atoms, new nitrogen atoms, and a number of other elements, such as a rather large amount of potassium. I was waiting till he was gonna get to that. So To drop away from the chemistry for a moment, let me say it this way. In changing the water into wine, Jesus did a miracle that was far more than just a rearrangement of the stuff of the water into something else. It was the making of new stuff. The formation of new atoms is really just like the old lead into gold idea that the alchemists have said to have pursued. In modern science, this kind of transformation can be done, but only in giant particle accelerators or special systems like that. It is never something that can be pulled off in the chemistry lab. Atoms always stay the same in the lab. They can be rearranged into different molecules, but they never change into something else. Oxygen never becomes carbon. Hydrogen never becomes nitrogen. Such things cannot happen. The miracle was, in one sense, not very different from the initial creation itself. Creatio ex nihilo is the Latin phrase to describe God's creation of the universe. Creation out of nothing. Something from nothing. Matter and energy where previously there was nothing at all. Thus, Jesus' first miracle ranks with Genesis chapter 1. The creation of matter out of nothing. Water into wine. Creatio ex nihilo. Isn't that good? The stunning miracle is where Jesus makes something new. New molecule structure, plain water into aged wine. And friends, this should encourage you for those of you who read the Genesis account and you doubt that God really created the world. Or when you hear the resurrection of the dead and you think, I don't know. And yet, in John 2, there's even more to consider. 
beyond just the fact of the miracle, put yourself in the position of the groom. Jesus has just lavishly blessed the groom with 120 gallons of fine wine. Imagine the, the moment where the head servant comes to the groom and he says, everybody else puts the good wine up, up front and then uses the bad wine at the end. I mean, you've brought out this great wine. And imagine the groom thinking, yeah, I don't know where this came from. <laughs> Behind the scenes, it was Jesus who blessed him. The groom received the generosity of Christ. When I read these words, I couldn't help but think of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So if you're a Christian, I want you today to feel the lavishness of his grace. Do you, do you sense in the story and in your soul what it was that Jesus did when he saved you from your sins and lavished upon you the wine of God's grace that you did not deserve? He made you new, and not just a better you, a new you, the 2.0 you. Same skin, same personality, ish same gifts ish same dynamics but now there's this new reality that has come inside of you and this miracle is more than just about the provision of sparing someone's social embarrassment if you read the rest of the story of john and the rest of this gospel and if you believe in jesus this account makes your heart leap for joy because you know that water is not the only thing that jesus can change you know, you know, he can change a bad marriage, a son and daughter who's walked away, a life that's got no purpose, addictions that you can't seem to break. And what happens is the power of Christ comes into play and he makes the old, not just new, he makes the old completely new. So the problem, the miracle, here we go, finally, glory. Remember that John is not simply recording here a historical record for us. These signs are designed to point to something more. And in verse 11, we see the effect on the disciples. He says, this was his first signs, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So for those of you who are here in chapter one, we heard John say, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We saw his glory. Here it is, John says, the disciples saw the miracle, they saw his glory, and they believed. They saw the miracle, but they saw even more. They saw the ceremonial jars, the way in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, 
that Jesus is ushering in a new era with a new cleansing and a new heart and the new hopes of a new Jerusalem. And this beautiful miracle communicates that the old is gone and the new has come and that from the fullness of Jesus we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. And the rest of this gospel will show us this over and over and over, that in the midst of deep and difficult human problems, when Jesus shows up, everything can change. So therefore, the question that I would have for you is this. Do you know that Jesus still makes the old into new? The entire message of the book of John, and for that matter, the entire message of the Bible, is that Jesus makes people new. If you're a Christian, I want to remind you that he made you new. Every once in a while, my wife and I play this little game that she and I consider where we would be without Jesus. She has scary ideas of what I would be doing for a living. (laughs) And she's right. I can't imagine. I I know the wickedness of my heart. You know the wickedness of your heart. If Jesus... And that's with Jesus, let alone without. Some of you have been a Christian for a long time, and you have lost the beauty and the awe-inspiring reality of what it is that you have become because of Christ. And can I just remind you that there is nothing too difficult for him. Some of you are facing challenges and problems and and, and difficulties in your life. And a year from now, you're going to look back and you're going to see the way that Jesus intervened. You're going to see the way that he was working all these things out for your good. In the middle, the question is, right now, can you trust him? Right now, can you anchor your heart on who you know he is and be able to look at this text and say, the same Jesus that turned water into wine is the same Jesus who can help me with whatever it is that's going on in my life today. Christian, do you believe that? Came away from a wonderful elder retreat last weekend, just reflecting on God's work of grace in our church, and just so helpful to think of the ways that God has shown up. But you know, in the middle of those, you have to fight for belief. It's easy to look back now and celebrate, but in the middle of that, it is hard to believe that Jesus can intervene. And I just want to remind you, the same Jesus that showed up at this wedding is the same Jesus who can show up in your employment situation. He's the same Jesus that can show up in the situation with your kids or your family or your marriage or your addiction. Jesus hasn't changed, and your problems don't scare him. Jesus hasn't changed, and your issues don't freak him out. He's the same one who created something out of nothing. You think he doesn't have the ability to intervene in this situation? The question is not whether or not he's able. The question or not is whether or not you believe that he is able. And then finally, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, oh, friend, this is, this is a text that calls you, even woos you today. 
And it may be that some circumstance in your life has recently woken you up to your need. What a gift that problem has been in your life. You may see it as the worst possible thing, but you know what? That is actually going to open the door to a brand new way of following after Jesus because you are this close to crossing the line to become a Christ follower, and the problem in your life has woken you up to the fact that you can't run your life on your own. And the same Jesus that turned water into the wine is the same Savior who wants to make you new today. He does this by making people new from the inside out. In a couple weeks, we'll hear Jesus put it this way. You must be born again. And so Jesus invites you to receive him so that new desires and new longings and a new power that you never had before can now become a part of your life and your experience. To be a Christian means that Jesus changes your life. The old is gone and the new has come because Jesus showed up. He still works the miracle. The question is not if he does. The question is whether or not we believe that is true.